Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today and enjoy the episode. everyone. Today I'm here with Carly. Carly is a social worker with a forensic pretrial diversion program. Oh, that sounds very complicated. (laughs) An MSW graduate school student, trauma survivor, wife, and stepmother. She has two bachelor degrees and, and has a passion for helping people. Carly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, that always uh, makes me happy to hear. Uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised there are actually been people that come on and I'm like, you don't want to be here, do you? <laughs> right, like you chose, you, you don't have your, to be your here. Your team told you you had to be here and that's why you're here. <laughs> right. Like, um, so you've been through, you talked a little bit about it in your bio, you've been through some shit. Um, let's not sugarcoat it. And a lot of it, um, inspired you to become a social worker from what I understand. Yes, exactly. So, um, I will say I'm actually in the transition of changing jobs. So when I put in my application, that's what I was doing at the time, but now I'm, um, about to start working with an HIV foundation and, um, my job will be, um, in the housing opportunities area. So, gotcha. um, I'm interning with my graduate school stuff. So that was really important as far as like priorities and my schedule mm-hmm. just wasn't working with that. So I'm transitioning there just, um, to put that out there. I was doing that, but now I'm changing, but yeah, absolutely. So a lot of, my experience and my background and my childhood um, trauma, just adversity, all the things is I really, <laughs> right. It really <laughs> what set the path for my career. And I, in the very beginning, when I graduated high school and started college and everything, it was different. Um, I actually was going to school to be a nurse oh. and <laughs> had like an early life crisis after all the trauma, imagine that, (laughs) Um, and decided, I don't want to go to nursing school. I still want to help people, but I just don't want to do that for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of how I ended up with social work. It was originally psychology. And then I also realized I didn't want to get my doctorate, (laughs) which you totally understand. That's what I'm applying to here, like having a full mental breakdown because all my professors are like, you need to have at least 10, at least 10 on your list or else like you're pretty much screwed because like the chances of you getting into one is slim. So now I've expanded. I talked to my spouse about this side note and I was like, I need to expand out of Connecticut. Like, cause I, I I like only have three now. My list went from eight and I started um, emailing professors and they're like, not accepting students. I'm not accepting students. So now we've expanded out. (laughs) To Ohio. <laughs> oh my word. Because exactly. I'm still not up to 10 yet. And I haven't emailed half of these professors. So the list of 10 could end up like being five. And right. then I have to it start all too. over again. It's a hot mess. A lot of people don't understand when you're in a social psychology program, 
you're not applying to the program. You're applying to work with certain professors who have similar interests to you. And they have to be similar enough that they'll be like, oh yeah, this person can help me with my research. Not like it's research based. We're all in social psychology. No, social psychology is a broad. Yeah. So yeah. PhD programs. Hot mess. Hot mess. Exactly. And we're talking about this is going to be like a thousand dollars worth of application fees. Like absolutely. And that's just the beginning of the hemorrhage (laughs) of money. (laughs) But yeah. So I was going to, I was going to do psychology and I was like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do that that long. (laughs) Um, And at the time I was actually working at a drug and alcohol rehab and one of the counselors there, I was networking and kind of like feeling out their experience because that's one of my bigger passions is substance abuse treatment. And she was like, well, you know, I have a degree in social work and the like options and variety of what you can do with it is almost endless. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking into that and sure enough, I started that program in 2018, I think it was. Um, And then UWF, University of West Florida, if anybody doesn't know who or where that is, um, had a program where you could basically get two degrees for one. So that's how I ended up with two bachelor's degrees. Criminal justice is another passion. So I hope to kind of like marry the two with my final career eventually. Um, But yeah, so that's kind of how that started. (laughs) So what, uh, did you have any personal experiences growing up that made you interested in addiction particularly? Yes, absolutely. So that's big part of my background. My father was a recovering addict and spent four years of my childhood. So between the time of like fifth, fourth, fifth grade to um, eighth, ninth grade, I think it was in prison. So he was a recovering addict. My parents got married. He was clean for a very long time. And then Hurricane Ivan hit. And Mm. if anybody doesn't know about that, it was category four or five, I think. Our house didn't get destroyed, but we had enough damage that it needed to be gutted and redone. And that was a really big trigger for him. So he relapsed, um, ended up committing some crimes, nothing like violent, but enough, enough consecutively to end up having to go to prison for four years. Um, And then when he got out, we did pretty okay for a couple of years. And then my mother I guess we'll get to that later, but um, had a terminal illness and wasn't doing great at the time. And the doctors were ideally with a normal person, it would have been okay because they were very blunt, very frank to the point, like, you know, Mm. expect this procedure to go really bad and things to go left. Like, don't expect it to come out on the mend. Um, And so he did not take that well. Um, Mm. He had only been out for three years at the time, I think it was. Um, So he relapsed again and got into a car accident that um, ended his life. So that was a big part of my childhood. Um, And I never looked at it like, you know, because most people, not most people, some people now, I think society is doing a little bit better, but 
see substance abuse as, oh, it's a choice or, oh, like, mm. you know, it's a moral failing or all I'm that a stigma jazz. researcher. So there's a lot of stigma up in there. Y- yes. You know, <laughs> and I never, I never like understood that. I never got that. I just see, you know, these people are struggling. They need help. There's treatment. Um, and then that's where my passion for that kind of started. And it's just kind of taken off from there. Yeah. There is a lot of mental illness stigma, but addiction has a whole other level of stigma on top of that. Um, Because where some people might see my disorder, like bipolar disorder and be like, oh, well, it's probably something wrong in your brain. And like, you know, maybe, I mean, some, because it's a highly stigmatized disorder. Um, Absolutely depression and anxiety are becoming more socially acceptable and less stigmatized. You're still talking about like bipolar disorder and like schizophrenia are still pretty yeah. stigmatized, but addiction trumps all of it. Like, people just, yeah. yeah. And I was guilty of that. I was um, in a relationship with an addict It's my middle daughter's father. I've talked about it before. Um, he's now clean and has been clean for a long time, That's awesome. but I ended up leaving him because he was very abusive and and things like that. And he had a lot of trauma and trauma people don't realize is a huge contributing factor to addiction. Yes. So I, right before I transitioned into the forensic pretrial program, that was my last job within the same company I was doing outpatient work. So a lot of the substance abuse groups, the evaluations that people need to, you know, start therapy or start those groups, or when they get court ordered for treatment, um, they would come to us. And I would tell people, I did that for a year and I would tell people, I was like, you know, I have hardly met anyone and by anyone, I mean, probably less than five who ended up with an addiction problem or substance abuse issue or something along those lines that did not have some sort of trauma, whether it was internal and like their own battle they had going on or within family and friends or life experiences, Mm -hmm. something is always there. And I don't think that is what people realize. They just see, you know, addicts are or can be manipulative and they lie and they do awful things that they usually regret once they get clean and that's all that people really see. So, and I think my biggest thing, as far as like that argument goes is sure. It's, I think it comes down to like the choice um, conversation that people like to bring up. Oh, well they decide to use, they decide to drink X, Y, Z. I mean, who doesn't decide to drink? Right. We all don't develop addictions. Like exactly. And you don't know. Exactly. That's what I try to tell people. I'm like, yeah, the first time, sure. But then it's a chemical, mental, like biological reaction and things that happen in the brain, which is an organ. People tend to forget that in the brain that those wires just get short circuited, something like that. And then it becomes a disease and people don't like to hear that, (laughs) but that's hopefully what I, um, eventually want to work in and work with. So getting that out there as well. I think it's very important. We actually had someone on the podcast. Um, I can't think of her name off the top of my head. I'm I've interviewed at least like 300 people during this podcast. So like the, the names get like all jumbled, but I mean, people can look at the category under addiction and check it out because she is a recovered addict. And she was talking about how broken our, our uh, addiction care is in the United States. 
Right. Absolutely. There was, um, because, you know, now we're kind of moving into, okay, it is a disease and we do need medical treatment and we're treating it with legal medicine, which Mm -hmm. can be amazing and wonderful. And I've told clients that I've had before, like, if that's what you, if that's what it takes for you to get off the hard stuff that, you know, can eventually kill you, then absolutely do it 100%. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the times, um, some doctors don't quite know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so it can also be dangerous in that aspect where treatment is supposed to be treatment and it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, so I hope one day we're in a better place as far as substance use treatment, but absolutely right now it's a mess, especially with everything that's on the street as far as fentanyl goes and stuff like that. So absolutely. Awful stuff. Um, since it's now legal in New York, I can talk about this. My sister smokes marijuana for her, uh, anxiety and it, it, it helps, you know, it helps her a lot. And I'm pro marijuana. I just can't, I just can't do it because of my bipolar disorder. Uh, it, it doesn't yeah. matter what strain it triggers an episode in me. So it's not a good time. I mean, it's not a good, not a good mix. <laughs> no, it's not like a depressive episode either. It's like a manic episode. So like, it's fun at the time, but then you like come down and you're like, oh, come out on the other end. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about addiction where people like kind of just do the things because they are, you know, they have this Absolutely. craving or whatever. People with bipolar disorder, a lot of people don't know have these strong impulses when you're manic that are kind of like that, where you have to give in or they just get worse. And so you come out on the other side and you're like, shit, I did, did things. (laughs) I I did that. I I did things. Let me not. (laughs) Can we not do that? So yeah, I'm, I, I am pro, I am pro marijuana, but she's had to be really careful about where she's getting. Unfortunately, we know people who have been growing it long before it was legal. Um, and so she has to trust, but yeah, people are lacing marijuana with fentanyl. Yes, it is even in marijuana. I've had, I actually, when I was at my previous job was working with um, a mental health nurse practitioner that we had, and they do, you know, drug tests for those clients just in case, because they do have, um, a long list of medications that they're on. So checking those levels and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said there was, there would be one or two clients who would be like, I promise I'm only using marijuana. Like that is the only thing mm-hmm. that I'm using or even have their medical marijuana card mm-hmm. and still show for, fentanyl and other substances where things have been laced and they had no idea. I knew somebody who smoked marijuana and it was laced with Molly. I believe it. That was the story she can tell you about that. That does sound like an interesting time. Scary, but also an interesting time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of that has to do with, okay, if what I'm giving you in this batch that I'm making is really good or gives you an experience you've never had, then you'll come back to me and buy your supply, mm-hmm. which is what it really comes down to. And people don't realize that either. So. Yeah, exactly. And people try to say marijuana is a gateway drug. And I always say trauma is a gateway drug. I was about to say the same thing. Yeah. Like, no <laughs> trauma. I promise it's trauma. trauma. <laughs> Hands down. Trauma. Adverse is, childhood experiences. <laughs> yeah. Trauma is a gateway to many mental illnesses exactly. up in here. Like I did a whole, I did my capstone paper for my bachelor's on the relationship between childhood trauma and bipolar disorder. And there is a very strong 
my oh, relationship. Awesome. Amazing. Very strong. Uh, so I'm like, wow, surprise. I have the genetics and the trauma. So I was bound and determined to get bipolar. Disorder. Right. And that's, that's another piece too. So I somehow, I have no idea by the grace of God or spirit. I don't know. Um, have not ever experienced any sort of depression, anxiety. However, um, I do believe that there are pieces of like OCD that I've worked with a therapist mm-hmm. before that I have, um, nothing on the extreme end, like definitely functioning all of that. But then on the medical end, I also have adrenal fatigue. And uh-huh. if you don't know what that is, it's basically where your body runs on chronic stress for so long that it runs out mm-hmm. of that hormone. And that hormone keeps you awake. So at like, I was working two jobs at around like 18, 17, 18, 19, something like that. And I remember I would wake up and it was like peeling myself off of the bed. It was awful exhaustion. Mm. And then what I always tell people where I realized like something is not right. Like this is not okay. I was a housekeeper and I was wiping out. I was like on my knees at the bottom of a dresser and wiping out a um, dresser drawer. And I fell asleep while doing that. Oh, and I was like, this is not a normal tired. Like this is extreme. That's crazy. Well, I look back and I'm like, that's probably where my body eventually just kind of ran out. Um, Fast forward to a few years later, I was working in a pharmacy that did a lot of compounding. So they made their own medications, did a lot of hormone testing, stuff like that. Um, A lot of homeopathic stuff. Yeah. And my pharmacist was like, have you ever had your cortisol levels checked? And I was like, no, what is that? Yeah. Mind you, I had told my, you know, primary care doctor, Hey, I'm really tired all the time. Right. Again, I'm like 19, 20 years old. probably shouldn't be this tired, but he kind of brushed it off. Like, Oh, you know, Mm -hmm. that's just fatigue. You're working two jobs, you know, just try to get some sleep. And so, uh, I got those levels drawn and where it was supposed to rise in the morning, it only like rose like halfway and then it was supposed to, you know, go down like, um, I guess kind of like a hill almost. It was supposed yeah. to taper off through the day. Well, mine was not even rising enough in the morning and then flatlining after like 9, 10 a.m. And I was to the stage where had I went much longer, I would have started to have like organ shutdown and organ failure. Wow. And so I look back and I'm like, I probably would have either one been in a car accident from falling asleep at the wheel because mm-hmm. that had happened once or twice before. And thank God I didn't, but it had happened or two would have, you know, just passed out. Things would have started shutting off, ended up in the hospital and who even knows for how long, because how long it would have taken for them to realize what the problem was. And that wasn't even discovered by a doctor. It was discovered yeah. by a coworker who was like, Hey, you're yawning at 9am. Like this is not normal. Right. Unless you're staying um, up until 2am. Like <laughs> Exactly. And I was going to bed at like seven, seven thirty Cause I would just be so exhausted. And fast forward now I'm on, um, because if it's to the point of extreme, you can see certain doctors and there are some like 
medications that they can give you, but a lot of it is supplements. So I've been on a supplement that I have to take three times a day. Um, but for a couple of years and I'm finally now starting to heal that, mm-hmm. but that's what it's from. Uh, 19, 18, 19, 20 years of just chronic stress, adversity, yeah. trauma, series of unfortunate events, whatever you want to call it, that just ran my body ragged. Yeah. When did your, how old were you when your mom developed her illness? So she started to get sick and by sick, I mean like pneumonia, bronchitis, like her illness was with her lungs. So she started to experience, you know, being sick more often than the normal person right around the time my dad went to prison. So double whammy, (laughs) Um, Hurricane Ivan came. He relapsed, did a lot of legal stuff. Um, Our house got rebuilt and then he got his sentence and went to prison. And then it was probably about a year and a half later where um, my mom lost her job because she was in the hospital for a week. Um, And they were like, I don't really know why this round of pneumonia was so bad, but nothing really came of it. It was like, okay, it's pneumonia. Okay, fine, whatever. Well, then fast forward a couple years and she had ended up getting pneumonia and bronchitis like every couple months and they just couldn't figure out what it was. Wow. Well, turns out that she had, um, reflux. So the contents of her stomach was refluxing into her, her esophagus, which is basically what you used to swallow. Um, and then it was, going so high, it would go into her lungs. Whoa. Well, stomach acid can dissolve paint on a car. So it was basically frying the inside of her lungs. And it had happened so often that they did a procedure where they basically stop that. A lot of medical stuff, um, but it stops it. That worked for a little while. At this point, she wasn't really getting as sick as often. And then they had to go in and check it. And they stretched it. So the procedure had to be redone. Whoa. Yeah. So um, at that point, she was still, you know, getting sick pretty often. But they were like, okay, maybe this will fix it. It didn't. <laughs> um, and she eventually ended up having to start wearing oxygen 24-7. And it wasn't until around that time where they were like, okay, it seems like what has happened is basically the inside of your lungs have been fried to the point of no repair. Um, the doctor described them kind of like bubble gum that you've chewed for too long. Um, yeah. So they didn't work the way they were supposed to. They didn't exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide like the way they were supposed to. So, and then because of that, she had been on, um, medications for so long that were trying to combat, you know, the illness that they still wasn't sure what it was. So she had no immune system. So that on top of, her lung condition, she could get sick at the drop of a hat. Well, it was shortly after that where they were like, you know, the, there's no cure for this because the damage has already been done. The only thing, you know, your option now is a lung transplant. So shortly after my dad got out of prison, um, she started going to Birmingham to start that process. Um, well, if you've never been through any sort of transplant of an organ, there's a long list of things that have to happen before you can even get put on the wait list. 
Um, so she got all the way up to like, she was needing one more thing and kind of realized, you know, once that I do this, if the organ even takes and doesn't reject, I am tied to Birmingham for the rest of my life. How, however long that could be. Mm-hmm. And it, and the doctor had mentioned, you know, it's just a bandaid. This is meant to give you five, 10 probably no longer than that years to your life. This is not forever. This is not going to give you, you know, 30, 40 more years. This is just meant to extend now. And at that time she was in her later forties because she passed when she was almost, she had just turned 50. Um, so she was like, you know, I don't think I want to do this. And she kind of sat us all down. Um, I have a younger brother and older sister. Um, and my dad had just died. So he died a year prior to her passing. Um, and she was like, you know, your dad's not here anymore to help me. This is going to be very strenuous, very extensive. If it even works, I don't think this is something that I want to do. I just kind of want to live out however long I have left um, and go from there. And we were, we were, we all agreed. We were like, you know, we respect your decision. Um, and she lived exactly a year and two months later. So they had given her back up prior to her making that decision. She was in the hospital with a hole in each lung. And that's when my dad relapsed, got into his car accident. She was still in the hospital at the time. Um, and they had said, you have a year without a new lung and five years with a new lung. And so when she made that decision, she lived a year and two months to the Friday that they had said that. So wow. after that year mark, we had kind of started just counting our days like, okay, every day is an extra day longer. Yeah. So how old were you when she passed? So my dad passed first. I was 16 and then she passed a year later and I was 17. What did you do? So, (laughs) yeah, at the time, um, my older sister, who is 18 years older than I am, um, she's from my my mother's previous marriage. So (laughs) she's basically like a second mom, but, um, she and her daughter had moved in with us right after my dad had died to just kind of help us out. And then she also was transitioning through like housing and stuff. So, um, it was, you know, win-win for everybody. But, um, so she moved in with us and, (laughs) um, at the time we realized my mom probably knew things were kind of coming to an end before we did, but closer to the end of that year in two months, my mom had said, you know, Hey, you don't have to move out. You can stay, help me with myself and my younger brother. Um, you know, you don't have to pay me rent or anything, you know, just help me out because my mother could still do like daily activities. She just required oxygen 24 seven and anything extensive, like, you know, cleaning the house or vacuuming or things like that. She couldn't do, she would get too much mm-hmm. breath, but, um, she would, she asked her to stay. So my sister stayed. So at the time when my mother passed, my sister was living with us and we kind of just continued that for a while. Um, and we all lived together for a couple years afterwards. Um, but prior when my dad died, my, it was just my mom and myself and my younger brother. And I'm very much the type of person to where 
Like I see the past as, okay, that happened to prepare me for something for the future. Mm-hmm. And so rather now, let me say grief is a journey that is specific to everybody as it comes in waves, like everybody experiences it in their own way. But for me, I never really had like the why or like the anger when my dad died. I just knew that he was fighting his own demons, his own struggles, and mm-hmm. he just lost that battle. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that just was what it was. But after that, I had looked back on him being in prison and was like, okay, that's probably what prepared us for this because now it's just the three of us again. So yeah, I was still in high school with both of them. I hadn't graduated yet. Yeah. That's a lot of stress to put on somebody who is so young. And I imagine like in that year you were having to help take care of your mom because she couldn't do all the things. Yes. So that kind of goes to what I tell people a lot when I tell them I don't want children. So I have Mm -hmm. a stepson. Um, He is 12. Um, He's very self-sufficient. He's not a baby. (laughs) Um, But other than that, like, I don't want kids of my own. And people mm-hmm. are like, oh, why? You're so young. And I'm like, I've been taking care of people almost all of my life. Mm-hmm. Because I was around, you know, 12, probably 12, 13, when my mother started to get sick. And when she would get sick, you know, she would require oxygen in the beginning. And then mm-hmm. she would be able to come off of it when she was better. But during those times, she really couldn't, you know, make dinner, do chores, do laundry. And it fell on me because at that time, my sister wasn't living with us. So yeah. it was just myself and my younger brother. I'm the older sibling. My father's in prison. My mom's sick. So it comes down to me. We weren't neglected by any means, but I had to help take care of her. And then when my dad, and that was for the majority of the time my father was in prison. And then when my dad died, it was back on me. Um, And so I, she was still, you know, cook and stuff like that, but I did a lot of the laundry. I did a lot of the house cleaning. Um, I helped drive her to and from appointments. Um, I had help from my sister, of course, at that time, especially after she moved in, but I still did a lot of caring for her. Um, So yeah, it was a lot. (laughs) I fully support people's decisions not to have children. I have four of them. And I often say, like, I don't think I was built to be a parent. And like, it takes a whole ass extra effort to, for me to show up, especially with a mental illness. Like there were times I was so depressed that, but I knew like I had to get my kids on the bus. So I'd have to drag myself out of bed and get them on the bus and then go right back to bed and set an alarm for when they would get off the bus. It's like, I mean, I became a parent not really by choice. I mean, I was 16 and got pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and then my second daughter, uh, her, her dad wasn't supposed to be able to have kids. He claimed, um, he now has three, okay? really? so, yes. <laughs> so I fell for, I was like, Oh yeah, well, this is what happened. He had something wrong with his testicles when he was younger. Yeah. And then this is what the doctor said you have a 50, 50% chance of having children. And he took that as I can't have children. Can't have children. What about 50%? Yes, because he hadn't used uh, protection with some of his girlfriends and they never got pregnant. I'm like, well, fertile Myrtle over here, who one of my ovaries drops two eggs at once. 
Like, oh, of course, no. I'm gonna be the one that gets pregnant. And then, so I already had two kids when I met my spouse. And I when he was just like, you know, if you don't want to have any more kids, it's fine. But I really always wanted some biological kids of my own. He treats my older girls like his own Absolutely. kids. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's when we found out one of my ovaries drops two eggs at once because we got twins. So- oh, my <laughs> word. So not only <laughs> do you have two other children, now we have two four, more. Yeah, we have time. four whole children. And so I'm just like, it, I fully support people not wanting to have children because like right. it, it is rough. It's expensive and it is rough. Like some, pe- some people are built to be a mom and they love it and they thrive off of it. I am not one of those people. I love my kids, yeah. but I will tell you it is rough. Right. And I've had conversations with people where they're like, oh, well, you're a social worker. You help people like you're empathetic. Like that's what you do, which it is. Like I have a tattoo that says, how can I help? Like that is all I ever want to do is just help people. But I'm like, I've been taking care of people my entire life. I'm, I'm okay. And my fiance just totally agrees. He's like, one is enough. He's 12. He's almost an adult like yes, we are I good love, I love that so, age. my <laughs> twins are 11 right now and I'm like amazing yes. <laughs> um so but yeah and it wasn't like I I will say I went through kind of like a midlife crisis at like 1920 because yeah. I took care of my mom my dad died and then my mom died and then I helped take care of my younger brother, because at the time he was still, I was 17. I wasn't even 18 yet. And he was still 15, 16, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my sister also had my two nephews and my niece and I helped her with them. And it was always just helping somebody with something. And then I left, um, and got married at 20. Yay. <laughs> and that turned out to not be um, unicorns and roses. Um, he had a lot of mental health issues and was also very narcissistic and just not, not a fantastic person. Um, however, he had a lot of mental health issues. So I helped him and I cared for him when he needed it. And it was just continuing that constant care for somebody. Mm -hmm. Fast forward two years later, we ended up getting divorced size point. But at this point, I'm done. I'm yeah. done. I want to care for myself and my clients that I can leave at work. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the way my uh, therapist put it, she was like, because of the things you've been through and the people you've had to deal with, you have a higher capacity for bullshit than the most people do. And she's like, so you put up with a lot more than the normal human being will before you actually like tap out. I have heard the exact same thing. Absolutely. (laughs) And she was like, you know, you've cared for people most of your childhood. Like it is ingrained in your wires in your brain at this point. However, you still have to take care of you because Mm of, you know, the medical stuff that has happened as well. You still have to, you know, fill your cup before you pour out and fill somebody else's cup. Um, And that kind of even goes back to like the OCD. So for me, it has a lot to do with cleaning and um, tidiness. And my therapist at the time was like, well, you know, that's pretty much the only thing you've been able to control in your life. All of the events, all of the, you know, series of things that have happened, um, you can't control, you haven't been able to control. Most of your life has been out of your control. So your environment and keeping it clean 
is just about the only thing you've been able to control. And then it kind of came an obsession. So um, I'm very, I went to therapy, I'm much more functional now, but at the time um, that was a big thing with my ex-husband. He was very not clean, not tidy. Um, it caused a lot of arguments, um, but I put up with it for a long time. And then I eventually just became like emotionally fatigued almost. I was so tired of constantly fighting for, okay, you know, the struggles that I've had, you've know, you know, this is, you know, something that's important to me because it is something that I can't control. Um, it's not anything crazy. Just pick up your stuff. Um, I do everything else. Um, and so that became a fight that I eventually was like, you know, I can't for myself, I can't do this anymore. So absolutely. understand that too. (laughs) Yeah. And let's be clear because like a lot of people, one of the stigmatizing things people say is like, Oh, I'm so OCD. I'm not talking about you. Um, I'm so OCD because I like things neat and tidy. No, no, no. When you have OCD and that happens to be your tick, like your, your thing it's an obsession. It's We're an not obsession. talking about like, I like things neat and tidy. I like my shirts that are the same color to be together. Like it is an obsession. Obsession. And if I see it, I don't take care of it. Then I'm constantly thinking about it and staying or living in an environment that is constantly untidy and messy and dirty creates this just internal anxiety that is just so uncomfortable. Um, and it's just, a a whole nother level. Um, and like I said, I've been to therapy, um, much better now. Uh, but at the time it was like, a come home every day and clean the house. Like you would once a week or would once a month, like every single day, because I can't sit with myself and be comfortable and not anxious and not obsess over my environment if I don't do these things. So yeah, yeah absolutely. Which is not something I've recently found out that I recently, you know, got that diagnosis or whatever, um, as I work with therapists and they're like, Hey, maybe you want to think about that. Um, but like I said, I'm much more functional now. So it's not something that I talk about a lot. Um, I'm able to work with it more. Um, my therapist, I remember when I was originally seeing a therapist for some of the issues, um, she was like, what's going to happen if you don't do the laundry all in one day. Oh, you I bet you felt it when you were thinking about that. Home yeah. and vacuum every day. And I was like, um, <laughs> uh, I can't do that. <laughs> that's not happening. And she was like, no, I need you to do that. Like, that's very important. So at this point, I don't talk about it often, but it's something that I do bring up when I talk about, you know, my journey and everything. Cause it, 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 it was one of those things that was like, an effect from the cause, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I, I totally get it. And we've had people on before that have talked about OCD and their tips and the, you know, things that they've been through. And, and, um, our last guest that talked about it, she, um, Rebecca, I know her name because she's been on multiple times and, uh, she's right. actually the host of the bipolar girl podcast and she oh, was talking that. about it. Yeah, it was, it's great. And she, um, was saying how, like, cognitive behavioral therapy is a huge part of like learning to cope with the OCD and how you have to like 
they they push you a little bit to like challenge like these things and like it's very uncomfortable (laughs) it was so uncomfortable she was she told me at one point too she was like I need you to have a pajama day so a day where you don't get up and you don't clean you don't do anything like you don't step foot out of your bed pretty much and I was like "Eh, excuse me (laughs) you want me to what (laughs) can I do that that's right (laughs) that's not in my wheelhouse please don't do that to me thank you (laughs) exactly exactly but over time working with her and figuring out ways to kind of like okay I'm not fully cleaning but this is like a meat in the middle I can you know do this and it kind of relieves the anxiety of the mess or whatever it may be, um, has also helped a lot. And I've also recently found out that I have issues with my back that requires me to not clean. Um, so that has also been difficult. Um, another part of my story too, because it's two bulging discs. Um, and I've never played sports. I've never been in a car accident. I've never fallen. I've never had any sort of back injury. So it really happened. I don't know if you would call it spontaneous, but I guess you could because there's no really definitive cause. Um, however, my chiropractor was like, well, you know, trauma and stress can on extreme ends. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. That's it. (laughs) That'll be what it is. (laughs) Yeah. I'm taking health psychology and they talk about the biocycle psychosocial model where like, it's not just like, you know, just focusing on the physical is not enough because you can develop all these different things for like chronic stress and trauma and, and not even like physical trauma, like literally just experiencing like emotional and verbal like that sort of trauma too like right exactly and that's what a lot of people which I'm sure you know but a lot of people forget that trauma isn't just it doesn't have to be some catastrophic event it is whatever the brain perceives to be a danger or challenging and extensive it can be anything and those effects if not dealt with can develop to be you know extreme or physical ailments or in anything just about. Um, when I talk about it a lot, I always bring up the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score. Oh yeah, I've by, heard of that before. Right, by um, Vanderkolk. But it's really a big, I don't even know what you would call it, but it really just explains how if you don't deal with your trauma, it can present itself within the body, which is so important. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, Carly, as we wrap up the podcast today, because the time goes by super fast. Yeah. Everybody's like, wow, it's over already. And I'm like, I know, I I could just talk all day, but I have to look up PhD (laughs) programs. Um, (laughs) Right. Find my 10. (laughs) Yeah. What would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? Just that no matter what happens to you, you can always come out on the other side. And I think a big thing for me is just remembering that if I tell my story, if I, you know, leave anything with anybody, it's to just remind them that you can come out on the other side. You can be someone else's survival guide and you can get through whatever has happened. Um, That's probably 
the biggest thing that I live by is that my story can be the survival guide for somebody else. Um, So I always want to get it out there and talk about it. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, Now that's of course saying if you're comfortable doing so, but exactly. um, Yeah. And remembering to take care of yourself. I tell coworkers, colleagues, friends, family, clients all the time, you can't pour from an empty cup. So Mm -hmm. if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't do for others. Um, So those are probably two of the biggest things that I try to tell people and I'd like to leave for other people. Um, They're most important to me. So I always say every woman has a story and every story can inspire someone else. Like, yes, exactly. I've heard from uh, people, listeners, avid listeners of the podcast, which I love them so much. Um, And they'll be like, you know, I might listen to a story and I've never experienced that and I can't relate, but I learned something from it Um, and I enjoy it. Yeah. So like it, I mean, that's the whole point of the podcast is like, I, right. I, I, I got into social psychology before I really did, because like, that was the whole premise of the podcast is like yes. shift perspectives and, you know, help other people. Well, that's like social psychology 101. Right. <laughs> that's the whole purpose. There if I can do go. anything, I want to do that. <laughs> yes. Well, well, Carly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. I'm so happy to have this experience. It was so fun. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.